This is Mike Grell, and you're listening to Warlord Worlds. Welcome back, and thank you for listening to Warlord Worlds, a fan podcast devoted to the comic creations of writer and artist Mike Grell, including The Warlord, John Sable, and Green Arrow. I'm Ruth. And I'm Darren, and this is a fan podcast. We're not affiliated with Mike Grell, and the opinions expressed are just ours. We do this podcast simply because we enjoy reading and talking about the comics of Mike Grell. The number of issues covered in each episode varies based on story arcs. Today we're talking about the Warlord number 37 through 39, which includes the first appearance of a significant character, and I'm sure everyone will enjoy that. And we have a special guest, Sean Ross of the Pulp to Pixel Podcast Network, who will be discussing one of his favorite Green Arrow and Black Canary stories from Green Arrow number 31 and 32. We'll also continue our coverage of the Legion of Superheroes by Mike Grell with issues 214 and 215. Our special guests joining us for that segment are Philip Schweier of Comic Book Ben and Chris Carnes of Bat Books for Beginners. If you enjoy the podcast, please check out MikeGrell.com. That's his official site. You'll find his convention schedule, photos, and news updates there. Mike has upcoming convention appearances in Dayton, Ohio, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Spokane, Washington, Fort Myers, Florida, Knoxville, Tennessee, and he's just added Raleigh Supercon to his schedule, which is local for us, so we're looking forward to seeing Mike this summer. As always, pre-orders for convention sketches may be placed through Scott Cress at CatskillComics.com. And if you can't make it to a convention but would still like to get an original drawing, then Scott Cress can help you with that. Just make your request at CatskillComics.com. On his website, Mike Grell marked the passing of Harry Selby, who is one of his heroes and the man he called the real-life John Sable. Also at the website is Mike's director's commentary for the Longbow Hunters where Mike shares his memories of the series and his love of the character. Any fan of the series will enjoy the post, so we definitely encourage you to check it out. In addition to Mike's website, we also recommend the Mike Grell page on Facebook. The site features lots of great news and images and is expertly run by Gus Ceballos and Jeff Messer. Mike Grell's variant covers continue for the current series. Recent covers include issue 36, which features Green Arrow gasping for air as he's trapped in a flooding room. Issue 37 is a dramatic monochrome image. Green Arrow is holding Imiko, who has been shot with an arrow. And Issue 38 is a nice montage of multiple characters that forms an image of a shield. All of these covers are wonderful, and we hope every Mike Grell fan is collecting the variant issues to show DC just how much we love his work on Green Arrow. There's some other news that should interest fans, and we want to thank Martin Gray, Karen Williams, Professor Allen, Mark Sweeney, Joe Crawford, and our friends at Weird Science DC for making us aware of it. That big news is that the Warlord is currently appearing in the pages of the comic Trinity, which features Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. The storyline begins in issue 17, and it's terrific to see the Warlord in the DC Rebirth world. Let's all hope it leads to a new Warlord series. So many wonderful friends messaged us about this, and we hope we remembered all of the names. If not, please let us know, and we'll be sure to give you a shout out next time. 
And we do enjoy giving shout-outs to our friends and sharing listener feedback, so please feel free to write to us anytime and join in on the conversations. We'd love to hear your thoughts about any of Mike Grail's titles. We'll provide our email address and other ways to reach us at the end of the episode. Warlord Worlds is part of the Rad Adventures Podcast Network. If you enjoy the show, please consider checking out our other podcasts. They're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and YouTube. Xenozoic Xenophiles covers the post-apocalyptic adventure series Xenozoic Tales, featuring Cadillacs and Dinosaurs by writer and artist Mark Schultz. And Trekker Talk is devoted to the adventures of 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair from the pages of the sci-fi comic Trekker by writer and artist Ron Randall. Mike Grell, Mark Schultz, and Ron Randall are our favorite comic creators. Their stories are always filled with adventure and interesting characters, and their art is excellent. We hope you'll try out our other shows, and we'll be sure to include links to those podcasts in our show notes. The Warlord, number 37, September 1980, A Horse of a Different Color, written and illustrated by Mike Grell, inks Vince Coletta, colors Adrian Roy, letters Ben Oda, editor Jack C. Harris. The story opens with Travis Morgan and Shakira hiding in the brush while watching a white horse drinking water from a nearby pond. Morgan is maneuvering into position to leap onto the steed, but Shakira is trying to discourage him. However, he doesn't listen and springs onto the horse's back. The horse rears up, and we see why Morgan was so interested. The horse spreads its wings, revealing that it is a pegasus, and it flies into the air trying to shake Morgan from its back. Shakira races along the ground, but soon loses sight of the flying winged horse. Suddenly, a snare is triggered and wraps around her, but Shakira's cat-like reflexes are quick, and she cuts the snare with her spear before it can tighten around her. She sees the man who triggered the trap in the bushes, but when he steps forward, she sees that he is actually a centaur. He races forward in another attempt to capture her, but with her quick reflexes, she easily trips him, and as he falls to the ground, she puts her spear to his neck. He introduces himself as Arvok Thunderhoof and looks at her fondly, claiming he intended her no harm, but she has no interest in hearing his excuses. The only thing that will save him from her spear is if he helps her find Morgan and the winged horse who flew overhead. He knows where the Pegasus will take Morgan, and he tells her she will likely never see him alive again. He leads her to a jagged rock spire with a temple at the top far above. He tells her no human can climb the rock spire. But Shakira transforms into a cat, and begins to leap from narrow ledge to narrow ledge. Meanwhile, the Pegasus has landed at the temple at the top of the rock spire. Morgan begins to look around, amazed by the many intricately detailed statues that decorate the temple. Then he is surprised by a beautiful woman with green hair who is dressed in a green flowing dress. She introduces herself as Astarte and shows Morgan around the temple. She offers Morgan a glass of wine, but just as he moves it towards his lips, a black cat leaps from the shadows, knocking the glass of wine to the ground, and Shakira the cat begins to claw at the face of the woman in green. Morgan looks down at the partially spilled wine and realizes that it was poisoned, and then he realizes the intricate statues surrounding him were once people who were tricked into drinking the wine. The woman in green rises from the ground, her face covered in scratches. She raises her arms, which transform into wings, as she turns into a giant harpy who flies to attack Morgan. But Morgan grabs the partially spilled glass of wine and throws it at the harpy. She suddenly turns into stone and crashes to the ground, breaking into pieces. Shakira chastises Morgan for his poor choice in women, and he tells her he would prefer not to discuss it as the two climb onto the Pegasus and fly away. 
The cover features an image of Travis Morgan on the left side holding his sword. On the right is Shakira in her human form, and below her is her cat form. Mike Grell uses the double-page title page to reveal the horse has wings, with a stunning image of it trying to throw Morgan from its back. We've mentioned before just how well Mike Grell draws horses, and a Pegasus is no exception. It looks amazing in every image. I love seeing how competent Shakira is in this issue. Traps can't stop her. An armed centaur can't stop her. A spire of jagged rock can't stop her. And Morgan is saved by her once again. And she does all of this while looking terrific in every panel. The sequence where she bests the centaur is filled with many wonderful panels, including the bottom of page 8, where she is holding her spear, and all of page 9, where her profile on the left side creates the border for many of the panels on the page. The page when the woman in green transforms into the harpy is another favorite with great panel layouts. This is an excellent issue. The Warlord number 38, October 1980, The Shape of Things Gone By. Written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Inks, Vince Coletta. Colors, Adrian Roy. Letters, Todd Klein. Editor, Jack C. Harris. Travis Morgan and Shakira are riding upon the Pegasus from the previous issue when Morgan announces he has decided on the name Firewing for his winged steed. They ride higher into the sky and Morgan points out the entrance to Skataris and Shakira sees the sun from the outside world for the first time. Morgan then turns Firewing back toward the coast of Shambhala, where he notices a ship under attack by a giant leviathan in the sea below. But it's not the kind of ship he should see in Skataris. It looks like a yacht, and the name Lady J is painted on the side. Two men are on deck firing guns at the creature. Morgan leaps from Firewing and buries his sword Hellfire into the brain of the giant leviathan, killing it, and it sinks into the ocean waves. Morgan climbs aboard the yacht and finds Pat Chambers safe, but Harry Grimes has been mortally wounded. He then hears another voice, a familiar voice, and turns in surprise to see his daughter, Jennifer. He left her in the care of her Aunt Marie after her mother died. She was eight years old at the time, and Morgan didn't want her to grow up alone on an Air Force base when he was away on so many missions. She is now a grown woman and has been searching for the father she thought had died in a plane crash, until she heard the mysterious story of a man named Ben Stryker, who claimed Morgan was living in a world at the center of the earth. They anchor the ship near shore where they bury Harry Grimes. There they are surrounded by armed warriors who believe they are pirates who have captured the ship. But Morgan recognizes his own insignia on a banner that is being carried by one of the men. The leader of the group steps forward, and we see that it is Otten, the young boy who Morgan gave his flag to many years earlier to spread the word of his fight for freedom. The boy has grown into a young man and has continued to rally warriors in Morgan's name. Seeing this, Jennifer asks Morgan to tell her of his time in Skataris, and he shares stories of Demos, Machiste, Mariah, Tara, and Joshua. Morgan leaves Jennifer to contemplate all that he has told her while he goes to talk to Pat Chambers. Morgan suspects there is more to the story, and Chambers admits to being a friend of Ben Stryker, and he manipulated Jennifer into searching for her father. He planned to kill Morgan for driving his friend insane, but that is all behind him now, because he has fallen in love with Jennifer. Not knowing of Chambers' confession to her father, Jennifer decides to return to the surface world. She is happy she has found her father, but she has other work to do for now. The cover features a dynamic image of Travis Morgan protecting his daughter Jennifer. 
His sword is drawn as he faces armed men ready for battle. The opening page of the story features some great scenes of the winged horse, and the double-page title page features a spectacular image of the Leviathan attacking the small yacht. I like how several characters from the past come back in the story, including references to Ben Stryker, as well as the young Harold Morgan sent out with his flag years ago. It's great the way Mike Grell weaves together plot points and characters over time. I really like that Morgan recognizes Jennifer instantly, even though she was a child the last time he saw her. I didn't remember that Jennifer showed up this early in the series, but it's a great development and foreshadows many stories to come. Plus, it's perfect timing since Jennifer is featured in the new Warlord storyline from the pages of Trinity that we have mentioned earlier in the show. The Warlord number 39, November 1980, The Feast of Agravar, written and illustrated by Mike Grell, inks Vince Coletta, colors Adrian Roy, letters Todd Klein, editor Jack C. Harris. The story opens with Travis Morgan bidding farewell to Auten, the herald who continues to spread the word of freedom and the warlord. Morgan and Shakira ride into the sky on Firewing, but are soon attacked by several giant pterodactyls. <coughs> Thankfully, Firewing is able to outmaneuver the flying dinosaurs and makes a hasty escape. On the ground, we see a figure in the shadows watching the battle, and he reports the failure of the attack back to a mysterious unseen master. Continuing their flight, Morgan sees abandoned Atlantean ruins in the jungle and glides the winged steed in for a landing to investigate. Shakira notices Firewing was injured during the battle with the pterodactyls and chastises Morgan for treating the steed like a possession when he should be set free. Morgan dismisses her words as he walks into the large Atlantean complex to investigate. When Morgan steps inside, his presence triggers equipment to start up all around him. The noise attracts Shakira's attention outside, and she comes inside to find Morgan. Morgan has discovered the facility is an armory. He admires the many advanced weapons and is amazed they all seem to be in excellent condition. Just then, a door slides open, and a robot enters the room and introduces itself as Boggs. He was built by the Atlanteans and is there to serve. Morgan and Shakira follow him into a luxurious room where he serves them wine, but moments later they both become drowsy and realize the wine is drugged. The two awake to find they are strapped to a table near a large jagged hole in the floor. Boggs tells them it's time for the Feast of Agravar. Shakira calmly states that she is not hanging around and transforms into a cat and easily slips free from the bonds and races from the room. <coughs> Just then a giant snake-like creature with sharp fangs rises from the large hole in the floor, ready for its feast. Boggs leaves the room to search for Shakira and finds her in the hallway in her human form and holding one of the weapons from the armory. A blaster shot later, Boggs is nothing more than a crumpled pile of metal on the floor. Meanwhile, Morgan has managed to break free from his bonds and is trying to stay out of the reach of Agravar. Shakira enters the room and aims the blaster and a moment later the giant creature lays dead on the ground. Morgan thanks Shakira for saving his life once again. But as they walk outside the Atlantean complex, his thanks turn to anger when he sees that Shakira has freed Firewing. She tells him that if Firewing chooses, then perhaps their paths will cross again, and Morgan finally realizes that she has been right all along. In the final panel, in another part of Skataris, we see the Herald Autumn come upon a damaged ship that has run aground. It is the yacht, the Lady J, but Jennifer Morgan is nowhere to be seen. The cover features an image of Travis Morgan riding on Firewing. 
His sword is drawn, and he is ready to battle the pterodactyl surrounding him. The double-page title pages by Mike Grell are always a treat, and this one is no exception. It's an action-packed image of Morgan and Shakira on Firewing as several pterodactyls attack. Mike Grell perfectly captures Firewing's look of fear and distress in the image. The following page of their escape from the pterodactyls is a favorite, with great panel layouts and swooping action scenes. Shakira comes to Morgan's rescue once again, and I like that, even though this time she didn't figure out the wine was drugged in time. The cliffhanger ending is exciting, and I want to know what happened to Jennifer, but that will have to wait for another time. In 1984, I was 10 years old, and a strange light lit up the park behind my house. In the middle of the night, still in my pajamas, I ran to investigate. A strange machine sat brooding in the dark. I stepped inside and I was taken to a far-off galaxy where I saw men, monsters, and gods fight and die. Join us again on the Marvel Superhero Secret Wars and Beyond series, part of the Pulp to Pixel podcasts, where we will discuss each issue of the Secret Wars miniseries and their long-term impact on the characters who joined us on Battleworld and on those we left behind on the home front. Join us again on Battleworld. Return with us to our Secret Wars. Joining us next is Sean Ross, who you probably know from the Pulp to Pixel Podcast Network, where he and Dr. G host a variety of excellent podcasts, including Welcome to Astro City, Secret Sagas of the Multiverse, Dial G for Gamer, Marvel's Secret Wars and Beyond, and MotuCast, based on the Masters of the Universe. Sean's a big fan of Mike Grell's Green Arrow, and this two-part story is a favorite of his, so we're very excited that he wanted to share his thoughts on these issues. Hi, I'm Sean Ross, and I am the co-host of Marvel Superhero Secret Wars and Beyond, and Welcome to Astro City, two podcasts that can be found on the Pulp to Pixel podcast network. Darren and Ruth have been kind enough to allow me to join them today to discuss one of my all-time favorite moments in the story of Dinah and Ollie. Now, before I begin to discuss the issues themselves, Darren and Ruth asked me to tell my secret Mike Grell origin, which I am super excited for. Uh, I began collecting comic books back in 1982. At the time, I was really young, and so I was drawn to comics like G.I. Joe and Spider-Man and Justice League of America. As I got older, my taste in comics began to broaden, and when I was 13, I had to really suddenly leave my home and my father, who I was living with, and move to a new state to live with my mom. Being a teenager is tough enough, but now I was faced with a new city, a new school, and you know having to make new friends and all of the challenges that that presents. As is probably true for most of you who collect comics, I found comfort and companionship in the characters that I loved. However, age and maturity were starting to change my tastes, which is probably true for most of us as we grow a little bit older. And these new hardships I was facing with this very sudden move were expanding my desire for more complex stories and sort of more nuanced stories where the characters were facing hardships that at least emotionally mirrored my own. 
And I found that in my new comic shop in my new city. And on the first day when I went to check it out, I saw Green Arrow, The Longbow Hunters, issue one. Now, I liked Green Arrow in the JLA, but when I picked up the issue off the, the stands and I leafed through it, Mike Grell's art just grabbed me immediately. I mean, the way Ollie had aged, the way Dinah and he interacted, and the really visceral nature of his arrow's piercing skin, it just made it feel more real. It made it feel sort of like exactly what I was looking for in my search for newer and, and, and deeper stories. You know, gone were the boxing glove arrows and the shouting matches with Hawkman. And instead, I found a character facing hardships and just trying to make it through the day. And that really hit me as I was navigating my own hardships. So I was hooked. I loved the mini. And then I was ecstatic when I found out it was going to become an ongoing. And Grell's courage in maturing a character like Green Arrow and, and like Black Canary, and then removing them from that four-color world and, and affixing them more, more permanently and more firmly on the street and sort of in real life really stretched the bounds of what was capable of being done in comic books. I mean, Green Arrow is a book that should be discussed more as a game changer for the industry. It was a book that led me from G.I. Joe to Watchmen, and it helped bridge me from Spider-Man to Sandman. Now, not to say I don't still love those books, but it was the the gateway for me into the, the expanding and growing market for mature comics and for sort of a new style of comics. So, so that's my Mike Grell secret origin. He was really my, he was my entry point. He was my, my bridge into the world of more mature comics and into, you know, the, the kinds of comics combined with the others that I love, like G.I. Joe and JLA, that would sustain me as a collector for decades. So, so that's my secret origin with Mike Grell. Let's go ahead and move on to the issues themselves. So today I'm going to be covering Green Arrows 31 and 32, which were written by Mike Grell. Now, these are not drawn by the um, standard artist on the book at the time, Dan Juergens, who I love, but in fact by a fill-in artist, Grant Meem, uh, and they're inked by Frank McLaughlin, lettered by John Costanza, and colored by Julia LaCommente. Both books are edited by Mike Gold, who is the normal editor on the book at the time. The title of the two-parter is The Canary is a Bird of Prey. So Green Arrow 31 opens with an interesting scene that, that is catches the, the reader by surprise. There's a group of neighbors and they're at a backyard barbecue when a car drives by and makes noises imitating a drive-by shooting. So there's a really odd little scene, right? These aren't real bullets being fired. It's clearly meant to just scare or intimidate the people at the barbecue. The neighbors all head inside looking for safety, you think. And so in a more predictable comic, that would be what was occurring. But in this case, the car speeds back around and it fires real bullets at the, t- this, at the house and it's, you know, the house is being pelted. But in a twist, muzzles appear from within the house and they start firing back. They start returning fire. We cut away from this really exciting opening scene to Ollie and Dinah who are at the park flying a kite. So we get a nice little contrast of this action and then this tranquil, peaceful family scene. Ollie has a really funny interaction with some kids and Dinah, who's watching nearby, sort of pulls inward on herself. And we can tell, for those of us who've been longtime readers of the book, that she's reflecting on something that's occurred before. And and what it really calls back to is that famous scene in Green Arrow, The Longbow Hunters, where she tells Ollie that she will not have children with him because she will not raise orphans. And so we know the idea of, of children and of raising children is kind of between them and which is another nice little sign of these characters having aged and grown, which is one of the trademarks of Grell's run. We cut back to a news report to that same neighborhood, and we find out that 
in that neighborhood, some drug dealers have moved in. They've taken over sort of an abandoned warehouse and they've turned it into a crack house. And the neighbors are being interviewed and we get it's a nice tool for us to get some exposition because they're talking about, you know, these cars coming in day and night and drug dealers on the street and this increased level of violence and and that they they want this gone from their neighborhood and they've called the police and they've reached out and nothing seems to be done. So some of the community members rally and they're they happen to be former military, which is why we saw that armed response earlier to that drive-by scene. So the police get interviewed as well, and this is in particularly interesting because they seem completely disinterested in being involved, which is odd. It is a, a level of disengagement that indicates that maybe something bigger is going on. During the news report, a neighborhood woman had spoken out really vehemently saying that not only had she watched these cars come into the area, but she had taken down their license plate numbers. And so that's going to make her a bit of a target. Now, the next day, some kids in that neighborhood are leaving a class at school and the son of the woman who wrote the license plates down is shot. This again gets reported by the news and Ollie, who is watching, just grows furious and decides to act. Now, he does so without notifying Dinah or without properly preparing for any sort of interaction, some, any sort of violent interaction with a gang. He heads down to the warehouse area and he's going to storm into action. Now, he sneaks his way into the warehouse and he sees the man behind the, the drugs that are coming into the neighborhood. And it's somebody we recognize. It's Reggie Mandel, the drug lord that we first met in Green Arrow issue six. Ollie's caught up in this moment. He gets careless and he's caught. And the issue ends with Dinah waking suddenly from a dream where she senses that the man she loves is in danger. So that brings us to Green Arrow number 32. Now this issue opens with Dinah still shocked by the sense that Ollie is in trouble. She holds herself for a moment, but then she dresses for battle because this is Dinah Lance Warrior. This is Dinah Lance Black Canary. The violence is still escalating in the neighborhood, which is being witnessed by this young girl who's been in the background of both of the issues. Dinah reaches out to the police with her concern about Ollie, but again is rebuffed and is rebuffed in a way that indicates that either this department is corrupt or maybe there's more to this story than we know. While all of this is occurring, Ollie's being tortured at Reggie's command to see what he might know about this larger drug shipment they're expecting and to see what information he may have gleaned or who else he may have involved. We once again return to the police, but we learn that their seeming indifference was not in fact a callousness or a corruption, but they, have been, they know this drug deal is happening. They know the gang is bringing these drugs in. And they're laying a trap to capture them. They have an undercover agent in the gang, and they are enacting a, a police action that will result in a number of arrests, unless, that is, it is interfered with by, say, a vigilante who has gone in half-cocked. So Dinah doesn't know anything about the police's plans, just as Ollie did not before her. And so she reaches out now, this time, to the community members. And she's asking them if they've seen Ollie or if they have any information or any idea where he might be. She makes her way to the home of one of the neighborhood watch members, one of the men involved in that gunfight at the beginning of the last issue. She asks for his help and he's like, no, look, I have a family. I can't, I live here. I can't help you. And she says to him in a really powerful line, if you draw the line at your threshold, then you can bet that's where the battle will take place. And it's a, an interesting moment because it's, it's both true and powerful in that, you know, all it takes for evil to succeed is, is for good men and women to do nothing. But at the same time, Dinah's coming in here as, you know, as an outsider, she is not part of the neighborhood. She does not have to live in and with the violence. So her, her kind of sweeping in as savior 
rings a little hollow at times as well. So again, one of the really great things that Grell does in this book is there are no absolutes. There are just a lot of grays and, and Dinah's kind of occupying one of those spaces right now. So I, Dinah gets the idea that, okay, well, look, if Ollie came down here, he came down here to stop the drugs from coming in and, and the drugs seemingly are housed in this warehouse. So she's going to go in. So like Ollie before her, Dinah sneaks into the warehouse, but keep in mind, Ollie is more of a a blunt instrument and Dinah is more of a surgical, you know, sort of a surgical precision. So she sneaks in much more effectively and she's much more stealthy. And from a skylight in a, an eerily familiar scene, which we'll discuss, I'll discuss in a little bit, Dinah sees Ollie having been beaten and tortured and he's about to be killed. So she leaps into action. She grabs a machine gun. She had taken off one of the thugs that she had knocked out and she kills the guards and she kills the man torturing Ollie. There's no question here that this is not the Black Canary of the Bwahaha JLA, and this is not the Green Arrow and Black Canary of the Satellite League. You know, this is Dinah Lance, and in Mike Grell's Green Arrow series, you know, there are real threats, and these real threats require real and drastic actions, and Dinah takes those. So Dinah rescues Ollie, she begins to fight her way out against this gang, and she again is killing many gang members. But at one point, she and Ollie get pinned down. And she's, you know, real literally carrying him. He's no, he's no use in this fight. And she looks at him. She has a gun in her hand. And she says, don't worry, Oliver. I won't let them hurt you anymore. The last two bullets are for us, but the rest are theirs. And this is a really resonant line. I mean, she has said to him, like, I'm not going to let you be tortured. I'm not going to let us die except on our own terms. And before she can be overwhelmed and they can be overwhelmed and, and taken, we hear the sound of sirens in the background and the sirens drive the gang away. Now the fire department appears and we learn that they've arrived because the little girl we mentioned earlier who's been watching all of this unfold called them in order to be of help. This brings me to the end of the synopsis of the issues. So let's take a look at what jumped out at the issues and what's really resonated even today, even many years later. Now I want to begin with the art. I will freely admit I sighed palpably. <laughs> there was a, like a Oh, moment when I saw that Grant Meehan was the fill-in artist on these two issues. Meehan was a utility guy for DC in the late 80s and early 90s. He was the guy they brought in when a series was ending. Uh, I think about the Mark Shaw Manhunter series in particular, or when they had a sudden fill-in issue they needed. He's the definition of a journeyman artist. But I owe him an apology, because while the art in these issues isn't as textured as Dan Jurgens, the usual artist, Mime does a really good job adapting quickly to the visual shorthand of the book. Now, Grell is clearly an artist who writes for other artists. Through his entire run on Green Arrow, no matter who is drawing the book, Grell peppers the book with establishing shots that not only fix the reader in a geographic place, but in an emotional place as well. And in the opening of issue 32, when Dinah senses that Ollie is in trouble, she stares out into the Seattle skyline. Now, the panel communicates a lot. It tells a new reader where the book is set, right? Like we're in Seattle. And it tells the reader that there's this huge world out there. There's this big city out there. And Dinah has no idea where Ollie might be. It tells us that she's overwhelmed by fear and anxiety. And for a moment, just as anyone would be, she's paralyzed. But it also tells us how brave she is and what a warrior she is. Because in the very next panel, she strips down and she sheds her clothing, but also her fear and her trepidation. And she puts on her warrior's garb. She puts on her, not even costume really, but her, her armaments for battle. The man she loves is in danger. 
and she will overcome the entire city to save him. And that is really communicated in this page by Grant Meehan. Now, I have to say, this is the best work I've ever seen from him, and I think it's him responding to Grell's script. I think Grell, again, as an artist himself, is a writer who knows how to write in order to put his artists in the best position possible. The story itself has, has two real beating hearts. The first is the neighborhood under siege by the drugs and, and crime that have made their way into you know, what was formerly a, a residential area. Grell shows that these are good people and that good people will fight back, but that they need support to overcome the dangers that life can bring. He shows that the police are doing their jobs, but that as they do so, at times, they have to do it with a necessary but disturbing disregard for the safety of some over the good of the many. You know, they have to allow the drugs to come into a point so that they can capture more of the dealers when the big shipment comes in. But, you know, in that interim, people have died. And it's it's fitting end to the two-parter that Dinah and Ollie are ultimately saved by a girl from the neighborhood doing what she can to help by simply calling the fire department. So that that community is its own character in this in this two-part arc. And and that is truthful to the book because Grell is very much telling the story of a city and of a place and of a time. But for me, the the bigger heart of the two-parter, and this is the the exact reason I asked Darren and Ruth if I could cover these issues, is that a number of moments from from Grell's Green Arrow book from his entirety entire run have stayed with me over the years. But few of them are as crystallized in my mind as the moment when Dinah says to Ollie, the last two bullets are for us. That moment really cemented Dinah's character for me. You know, she is a fierce, passionate, and loyal woman who will do anything to protect her loved ones, even to the point of ending their lives before they can die at others' hands. And that was such a powerful moment. And that, when I think about, you know, Dinah Lance, when I think about Black Canary, and especially when I think about the two of them as a couple, I think about that moment quite a bit. And so, again, it was really great for me to get to go back to these issues. Now, her character's further fleshed out in the really purposeful parallel that these two issues draw to the Longbow Hunters miniseries that I've mentioned a couple times. In that miniseries, it is Dinah who is captured and tortured, and it's Ollie who must rescue her from near death. Now, in that series, Ollie murders the man who tortured Dinah, and it changes him forever. This time, the positions are reversed, and Grell has Ollie tortured, and it's Dinah who must kill in order to save him. Grell and Meme understand the, the parallels, and they underscore the parallels, by having Dinah and Ollie depicted in, in very similar fashion. So this time, it is Dinah who finds him, and she sees him in the way he saw her in the Longbow Hunters, which is through a skylight as he is being hurt and humiliated and, and is about to die. Now, the Longbow Hunters miniseries, it takes some grief, and it's taken some grief over time for the treatment of Dinah. People have accused Grell of hurting Dinah in order to advance Ollie's narrative, and that's a technique that has been used clumsily in comics for decades, right? Hurt the female lead or hurt the female love interest in order to, to have the man undergo an emotional arc, and this robs female characters of their agency and, and often of their purpose. But I don't think these critiques are fair in the case of Grell and in the case of Green Arrow. Because Grell was playing a long game. His entire Green Arrow run, which while made up of several arcs, is really one long story of a heroic couple coming to grips with age and what it costs to be a vigilante and to continue that life. And, and the price you pay not only every day in potentially dying and in the pain you, you undergo, but the bigger price you pay in the loss of a family or a legacy or children or that kind of thing. 
So he wasn't hurting Dinah to advance Ollie, and he wasn't hurting Ollie to advance Dinah. He's showing that the life they've chosen brings pain, but they're willing to experience it and overcome it in order to impact the world. And and really, honestly, I think in part to be worthy of each other. Like I think the sacrifices they make are also a sacrifice to live up to what the other sees in, in each of them. So so it's it's a, a really telling and, and powerful love story. So this two-part arc, it's going to have major repercussions for these two characters. Grell and Jurgens are going to do an especially good job in the upcoming two issues of showing the emotional impact of this experience on both characters. You know, Ollie's going to have to to really deal with the trauma of having been beaten and tortured and having Dinah having killed to come to his rescue. And Dinah is going to have to deal with the fact that not only did she kill to rescue Ollie, but she was ready to kill both she and Ollie to prevent them from being captured again. And so if you're a big Green Arrow or Black Canary fan, these two issues are really vital to their narratives. And, and I suggest checking them out. I suggest checking out the issues that come you know, directly upon them as well, because this is a pivotal turning point in these characters' lives. And, and it's a, a small story. Again, it's only two issues. But it's a small story that resonates, you know, even I would say even today, even even through all the retcons and the new 52, the fact that, you know, they've recently brought Ollie and Dinah back together in D.C., you know, it, it reaches back. It reaches back to moments like this where they are a definitive couple in comics because they are so bound to each other and so willing to sacrifice for each other. So, you know, as I wrap up, I just really want to say thank you to Ruth and Darren for giving me the chance to share in this episode. Um, you know, we're in a world where we are often really quick to tear things down and to to deconstruct. And it just takes real courage and dedication to celebrate and build instead of to tear down. And, the, the you know, their work in particular and the show, especially having it dedicated to the, the work of, of Mike Grell, like it doesn't just celebrate his work, but it also reminds us of the impact that his work has on the industry and, and the impact of that industry and those characters have had on us and our lives. And so... I just am really so excited to be part of this episode and just want to say thank you to them and and to you for listening. You might be wanting Batman's brave deeds So you go looking for something to read But there's a pile from ego to hush which trade is great and which to flush there's a podcast you know you can trust bad books for beginners bad books for beginners bad books for beginners bad books for beginners next up is our coverage of mike grell's run on the legion of superheroes Mike started his career at DC Comics with a brief run on Aquaman, followed by a long run on The Legion, where his excellent artwork quickly won over fans, and he remained the artist on the book from issues 202 through 224, and he continued to do covers for quite a while after that. Knowing there are many knowledgeable Legion fans, we invited guests onto the show to discuss these stories, and we're very excited to have these experts covering these fun issues. Joining us today to discuss issues 214 and 215 are our friends Chris Carnes of Bat Books for Beginners and Philip Schweier of Comic Book Ben. And if you're a Legion fan or just interested in learning more about the team, then we encourage you to visit the Legion of Superbloggers. That extensive site features news, reviews, and discussions from a great group of dedicated fans. 
We highly recommend the group and will provide links to their site in our show notes, and we'll send out a big thank you to Russell Burbage from the group, who has been very supportive of our coverage. Hi, Warlord Worlds fans. My name is Chris. Some of you may know me from the Batgirl to Oracle podcast, hosted by the talented Stella, where she chronologically reviews the comic book adventures of the Barbara Gordon Batgirl character. I have a segment on the show where I review the 90s Batman Adventures title based on the animated series. And I have such taglines like, that's like finding a comic book with Mike Grellart to fill a hole in your collection. I'm also a co-host of the Bat Books for Beginners podcast, where my friend Jerry and I review trade paperbacks featuring Batman and related characters. Thank you to Darren and Ruth for having me on, as I'm a huge fan of this podcast and have enjoyed what the prior guests have brought to the show. I'm a fan of Mike Grell myself, as well as Superboy. For a little personal background, the first issue of Superboy I got was Superboy number 197. I'd get more issues here and there, but would also get Mike Grell's first issue of Superboy and the Legion, and the subsequent ones thereafter. In the next couple of years, but still at an early age, I began to appreciate certain comic book artists' talents, including Mike Grell's. I wanted to collect other comics where he did the artwork. This was before the internet, so I had to rely on the Overstreet Price Guide, which did denote titles and issue numbers where he and other artists of note had their artwork featured. It was a long process to compile my checklist, but well worth it. I'm very grateful to Darren and Ruth to have an opportunity to talk about a book I got off of a 7-Eleven spinner rack many years ago. Superboy, starring the Legion of Superheroes, number 214, was cover dated January 1976 and had a cover price of 25 cents. This issue was also reprinted in the Legion of Superheroes archives, volume 12. The cover depicts, on the right side, a young red-headed boy flanked by robots pointing weapons, exclaiming, Robot Army! Forward! Destroy the Legion! And on the left side, we see Superboy in the foreground, with a row of Legionnaires behind him stating, The kid we tried to save! Betrayed us! Let's flip open this cover and take a look inside. The splash page depicts a bleak situation, as the heroes in our story are fighting robots while atop a pillar stands a sinister figure pointing a weapon at a boy's head. The text on the bottom of the page gives us the title of our first story, which reads as follows. Five deaths for one life? Sound unfair? How about five Legionnaires' deaths for the life of one rich, spoiled kid? Worse, you say? Maybe. But cruel fate bargains hard. And for a superhero, there is No Price Too High. No Price Too High was written by Jim Shooter and art by, of course, Mike Rell. took me a couple seconds to find them in the credits. They were cleverly drawn in the wheel caps of two different robots. The Legion roll call for this story is Superboy, Brainiac 5, Karate Kid, Shadowlass, and Wildfire. Our story opens on the planet Gerich, a factory world whose entire surface is covered by one enormous manufacturing complex. Our heroes have arrived stealthily to the planet and are there to fix a malfunctioning defense computer, which have made the planet's auto defenses to go haywire. They elude a passing robot sentry. Superboy looks to the sky and sees a one-man spaceship disabled by a blast from the planet's defense system, and with super speed, he rescues the lone occupant, an ungrateful boy who says that his dad is Leland McCauley and that his father owns the planet, and he's seemingly there for a joyride. The rescue alerted more security robots, and Wildfire shoots a blast from his visor, disabling them. Our heroes, undetected for the moment, then take refuge in an alcove, cloaked in blackout thanks to Shadowlass. They reluctantly agree that the spoiled boy will have to accompany them on their mission for his own safety, even if another battle ensues. 
The word fight prompts the boy to try to speak to the robots, and he emerges from the cloaked alcove before the Legionnaires can stop him. The boy gets no further than saying, Listen, my name is... before a robot shoots him with a ray gun, and Superboy deflects the beam in a blink. A battle quickly ensues. Superboy pulverizes a robot. Karate Kid kicks a robot's head cleanly off, and Wildfire blasts a robot. Just then, another robot seizes the boy and orders the Legionnaires to surrender, or else the boy dies. The Legionnaires do just that, surrender, and are taken to a different area. A gray-haired, dark-robed man emerges and calls himself the Overseer. The Overseer says he was a former security head on the planet and was fired by Leland McCauley III five years prior. The Overseer begged to stay on without pay, but his offer was refused. Now he remains on the planet as a ruler over the machines, and if the Legion tries to escape, he'll have the boy killed. And if they cooperate and be eliminated, the Overseer will let the boy go to spread the word that the planet Girich is now ruled by the Overseer. Left alone, the Legion realized that the Overseer does not know that the boy is the son of Leland Macaulay III, and if he did, the Overseer would kill him. Superboy uses super ventriloquism to warn the boy, but the boy refuses to believe Superboy and summons a robot guard to bring the Overseer to him. The Legionnaires have a squabble on how to proceed, and if the boy is worth all this bother. Superboy intervenes and tells the group a life is at stake. Just as the Overseer arrives to meet the boy, Wildfire is able to temporarily immobilize his vocal cords, making him unable to speak. Later, outside a spaceport, the Overseer plans to execute the Legion. The boy sees the name of his father written on the spaceship, and he says in front of the Overseer, the name on that spaceship is that of his dad. Infuriated, the Overseer then turns the gun on the boy. Superboy quickly tells the Overseer not to shoot, and he offers a deal. Let the boy go, and the Legion will agree to get blasted by the Overseer. Before the Overseer can answer, the boy bites the Overseer's hand. Then, the Legion acts quickly. Superboy and Wildfire disable the robots, and Karate Kid leaps and takes out the Overseer with a flying kick. The boy starts to cry, and he's consoled by Shadowlass. Afterwards, Brainiac 5 is able to get the planet's computerized security system in order, and the boy boards another ship and admits he was bad, selfish, and only thinking of himself before departing. Shadowlass asks Superboy if he would really have honored the deal of sacrificing themselves to the Overseer. <laughs> Superboy says that he and Wildfire were all already invulnerable to the Overseer's weapons. Brainiac 5 is wearing a force field belt, and that Superboy would have wrapped Shadowlass and Karate Kid in his invulnerable cape. After all, Superboy only agreed to let the Overseer blast them, but he didn't say they would die. And with that, Superboy winks to us, the readers. The End Next up, a tight six-page story entitled Stay Small or Die, which was written by Kerry Bates and art by Mike Rell and Bill Prott. The story opens with Salute Digby, also known by her heroic name, Shrinking Violet, laying on a medical table hooked up to a device called a Video Dream Scanner. Shrinking Violet is having a nightmare, and in her dream we see that she is in her shrinked size, entwined in blades of grass, and about to be seized by sharp talons from some orange creature. Saturn Girl and Brainiac 5 are monitoring her. From their conversation, we learn that Sunboy almost crushed Shrinking Violet in the gymnasium when she was three inches tall, and since then, she's been afraid to use her power. Saturn Girl and Brainiac 5 discuss courses of treatment, and it's surmised that if Shrinking Violet doesn't snap out of it, she will quit the Legion. Brainiac 5 thinks he should use hypnosis, aided by a device called a beamer. However, Saturn Girl thinks adding even the slightest bit of stress could break her. Later that night, Brainiac 5 goes into Shrinking Violet's quarters as she's sleeping, and he uses the hypnotic beamer device on her. 
Brainiac 5 spirits the entranced shrinking violet on a space cruiser. They go to a planet called Clora, a planet once inhabited by giants that were wiped out by a plague. But what remains are robotic pets that are still programmed to clean and vacuum refuse. Brainiac 5 uses an illusion meter around Violet's surroundings. And when she revives, she's attracted by what appears to be, to her, a giant robot-sized creature. But is really one of the robotic pets, and this one spews out silver, wiry, metal refuse. Violet tries to evade it, but in doing so, she falls off a giant table, and she lands into a wiry entanglement. Brainiac 5 has since found himself in a similar predicament. Worse, he's about to be sucked into the metallic, (laughs) animal-shaped machines. Before that happens, the machine apparently short-circuits and is disabled, and we see that Violet was responsible. She explains that when she fell off the table, her fall didn't feel right, and she knew that she was actually her normal size. So, thinking fast, she shrunk to get out of the wiry strands and was able to escape. Violet frees Brainiac 5, and he says that he owes her his life. Violet says they're even, for teaching her that no matter how small you are, and if you have confidence in yourself, you're ten feet tall. So let's take this apart. In the first story, I don't think the boy is actually named, but he is presumably Leland Macaulay IV, and I'll grant you this is a bit ambiguous. Macaulay's the third and fourth have roles in Legion lore, and a bit of a complex history, even eventually becoming the president of United Planets, and being impersonated by Ra's al Ghul in stories well few years down the line in the future. Jim Shooter, who was in his teens when he had his first written Legion story published, wrote this story and also wrote the story where Leland McCauley III first appeared, which was back in Adventure Comics number 374, cover dated November 1968. McCauley is a rival of R.J. Brand, financier and founder of the Legion, and the character would go through various changes, as the Legion would themselves over the years. Interestingly, Shooter would use the name Gerich again around two years later, But this time it would be for Marvel Comics, as Shooter co-created the character Henry Peter Gerich, a government official against the superhero community, who first appeared in Avengers number 165, cover dated November 1977. Reading the story as a boy, the notion of an entire planet as one whole manufacturing complex seemed fantastic. And again as a kid, seeing a spoiled brat get his comeuppance, or at least learning his lesson, was nice to see. The Legion certainly isn't fond of him, with Wildfire calling him an idiot and (laughs) Karate Kid saying he's a punk who took stupid pills. The story ends on a happy note, and we, the readers, are left thinking that the young boy learned his lesson. I did have a few panels that Mike Grell drew, in particular with a Karate Kid in battle taking out a robot and another where he takes out the Overseer. Grell does an outstanding job of depicting the super speed that Superboy possesses, deflecting a ray off his chest, saving the young boy. And Superboy's wink to the reader in the last panel was a great touch, perhaps evocative of George Reeves as Clark Kent winking to us at the end of a Superman adventure. (laughs) Very, very nice. In the second story, the actions of Brainiac 5 towards Shrinking Violet may give one pause and area of concern. Hypnosis without consent, kidnapping, much less not telling any other legionnaires of your plans beforehand for starters, doesn't speak well to a 12th level intellect. While Brainiac 5's intentions may have been intended for a cure, I won't try to defend his actions. One Legionnaire trying to help another Legionnaire overcome something in a story certainly wasn't new by this time. And the way out, roundabout path and means to get from point A to point B usually set this type of stories apart. Even as a kid, and to this day, I find the most interesting aspect of the story is the video dream scanner device itself, and wondering at what it would be like if such a device existed. 
Just imagine, a machine with a video screen depicting your dreams. Gary Bates wrote this story, and his work on the Flash title in the 70s and 80s are the first things that come to my mind when I think of him. Bates also written many, many Superman and Justice League stories, among many other titles. Despite the lack of action in the story, there are still some places where Grell's artwork shines. There's a gorgeous panel of a side profile of Saturn Girl, in a pose of all poses. Grell really does a good job depicting the anguish of Shrinking Violet's face as she's having her nightmare, and the serious and genuine concern of Brainiac 5's facial expression at the prospect of losing a Legionnaire. Ultra Boy and Colossal Boy have cameo appearances in this story if you're keeping score at home. The previous guests have debated whether they like the two-story per issue format or not. I liked them then, and in now my opinion hasn't changed. I will say some of my favorite Legion stories certainly are more epic in scope and are in multiple parts over several issues, but every now and then I do relish these days of shorter stories that still give us the spotlight to certain members of the Legion and giving them their due. I can't finish my segment without commenting about some of the things in this issue itself. First off, one of the names printed in the letter column looked familiar to me, and it was from now-current comics professional Sandy Gerald, who, along with others, wrote in and clamored for a Black Legionnaire. I was intrigued, and I reached out to Sandy Gerald via Twitter to confirm if that Sandy Gerald was indeed the same Sandy Gerald who had worked on the recent Batman 66 title and currently does the great artwork on the DC Bombshells United title. He responded to me right away and confirmed that he was one and the same. He said he even sent in a design for a Black Legionnaire, really realizing it was about time for one. I replied that I agreed and I thanked him for replying to my question and more so for what he did back then. He kindly said the day where he can't take a second to reply to someone will be a sad day. The exchange made my weekend. What a great guy. Sandy Gerald also has his own website called sandygerald.com, where you can find his blog, Funny Bookin', along with his artwork and shop. So, mild spoiler for a future guest reviewer, a new Legionnaire is coming soon. The letter column also announced that Karate Kid will be getting his own title, and astute Mike Grell fans know that Mike Grell will do cover art for several issues of the series, including the first issue. The issue also had some fun ads reflective of its times. There's an ad to join the $6 million man Bionic Action Club, Batman and Robin and a Hostess Fruit Pie ad, an ad for a Super DC convention in New York City to celebrate Superman's birthday, and a DC Comics house ad announcing the revival of two titles, All-Star Comics and Blackhawk. I usually give a book a rating on the other podcasts that I appear on, and I'll give this one 7.6 out of 10, as in the year 1976, the year this was cover dated. I think both Shooter and Bates have written much better stories, but the craftsmanship of Grell's art elevates this so slightly to above average material. I'll be sure to tweet some scans of my favorite Mike Grell panels when this episode drops. That wraps up my look for Superboy number 214. I'll be back in a few months to take a look at another Mike Grell drawn Superboy issue in a future episode. Listeners, I can be found on Twitter where my handle is at btonbatbooks. You can email me at bruce.wayne at gothamcity.us. And again, I can be found on Stella's Batgirl to Oracle podcast and with Jerry on the Batbooks for Beginners podcast. Darren and Ruth, thank you again for this awesome opportunity to reminisce and praise Mike Grell. What Legionnaire will suffer a final eclipse? What Legionnaire will testify against an assassin? And what Legionnaire will be called the hero who wouldn't fight? Don't fail to keep listening, where the answers to these stellar, stupendous sensations will be answered by the next super guest. Same Sutherland feed, same Sutherland sight.
Stay tuned. Hello, my name is Philip Schweier of ComicBookBin.com, and this is my review of Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes number 215, published in December 1975. This is one of those issues in my collection for which I have a very distinct memory. It was one of a handful of comic books I found in my stocking Christmas morning 1975. I remember a few others, but this one stands out specifically. It contains two stories, the first being The Final Eclipse of Sunboy, written by Carrie Bates and illustrated by Mike Grell. Bates seemed to write many of my favorite titles from the mid-1970s, Superman, Action Comics, and Justice League, among others. The story begins with a handful of Legionnaires, Superboy, Sunboy, and Element Lad, returning from a mission in space. Along the way, they are to pick up Phantom Girl, who has been vacationing on her homeworld of Bigitizzle, where all the inhabitants share her phantom-like abilities. During her stay there, she witnessed a mob execution, and though she captured the assassin, her brother Maya is concerned she may be targeted to prevent her from testifying. Even though she's demonstrated she's a very capable legionnaire, he's still her big brother, and very concerned for her safety. As the starship makes its final approach at Legion HQ, it suddenly begins to burn red hot and crashes. Thanks to Superboy, the passengers are able to escape unharmed, except for Sunboy. As he steps out of the wreckage, he is burning bright. However, his body is masked by a dark silhouette. With his powers out of control, the entire Legion HQ is in danger. After failed attempts from other teammates, Element Lad is able to subdue Sunboy by converting the oxygen around him to nitrogen, choking the flame surrounding him. The unconscious Sunboy is then taken to the infirmary where Brainiac 5 is able to assess his condition, but it's Superboy who comes up with an explanation. Somehow, Sunboy's body is being overshadowed by another, like an eclipse, sending his powers out of control. Two bodies in one? Yes, like a ghost or a phantom. They conclude a phantom assassin has hitched a ride inside Sunboy's body in order to get at Phantom Girl. Suddenly, Saturn Girl enters. Her telepathy has revealed someone is about to try to kill Phantom Girl. Sunboy immediately returns to normal. As the Legionnaires observe, two phantom figures grapple over Brainiac 5's pulse pistol. With a final punch, <laughs> Phantom Girl's brother Maya decks the other, a would-be assassin. Maya explains it was he who had stood away inside Sunboy but his presence somehow sent Sunboy's abilities out of control, trapping him inside. It was only when he saw the hitman emerge from Element Lad that he was able to break free and rescue his sister. Carrie Bates presents a few interesting elements, such as the red herring of Phantom Girl's brother being the cause of the Sunboy's predicament, rather than the assassin. Another trick that is pulled is when Phantom Girl captures the killer at the beginning of the story. He attempts to use a weapon designed for phantoms on her, but she overcomes the threat by turning solid, and the phantom plasma bolts harmlessly pass through her. And speaking of weapons, it's never explained why Brainiac 5 is carrying a pulse pistol in the first place. Even before the crisis comes to light, he is seen wearing the weapon on his hip. I thought the story fun and inventive, though the panel where Element Lad turns his uniform into asbestos seems amazingly anachronistic. But I can overlook this and write it off in the belief that 30th century technology has overcome its carcinogenic properties. Sunboy is apparently none the worse for wear, as he appears in the backup story entitled The Hero Who Wouldn't Fight by Jim Shooter. 
As a teenager, Shooter wrote some of the Legion stories in adventure comics in the mid-late to late 1960s, and had recently resumed his Legion career after graduating from college. The story is noteworthy for being the first appearance of what has been called Cosmic Boy's bustier costume. Black boots, black gloves, and a black bustier-like tunic, leaving the upper chest, shoulders, arms, and legs mostly bare. I remember in the months that followed, several readers asked in the Legion letter column what held up Kaz's tunic. DC had the perfect answer. Magnetism. In the story, the Legionnaires are sent to the obscure planetoid Karzagas, where they've received reports of the Emerald Empress forming a criminal army. Chameleon Boy attempts to infiltrate the ranks, but the Emerald Eye exposes him, and he is captured. Meanwhile, more Legionnaires wait aboard a cruiser in orbit above the planet. Cosmic Boy is among those aboard, but when they receive the signal to beam down, Mission Leader Ultra Boy makes it clear Cause is to remain behind. Shortly after their beam down, Lightlast beams back unexpectedly. The signal led the team into an ambush, and the others were captured. She begs Cosmic Boy to rescue them, but he explains why Ultra Boy left him behind. This is a special date on Cosmic Boy's homeworld of Brawl, in which the natives are forbidden from using their magnetic abilities. Were he to do so, it would bring shame on him and his family for generations. Lightlast continues to argue that their friend's lives are more important than his cultural beliefs. She pushes him to the edge until he is so angry he slaps her. Not a high point for any superhero, and it certainly wouldn't fly in today's more socially aware environment. Nevertheless, Cosmic Boy is prepared to attempt a rescue, and beams down to the planet, sneaks into where the others are being held, and tries to free them from the power-dampening cells in which they are held. However, he is quickly discovered. With no time to spare, he appears to use his superpower to lift a heavy piece of equipment, later identified as a quadrostat, to free Ultra Boy, who then frees the others. And it's in that moment that Cosmic Boy is fatally shot by one of the Emerald Empress's men. But with the others now free, she and her lackeys are quickly defeated. Cosmic Boy lies dying, and the others acknowledge his sacrifice of setting aside his people's beliefs by using his powers. But in truth, he used his Legion flight ring to lift the Quadrostat. Ultra Boy strikes a deal with the Emerald Empress. Cosmic Boy's life for her freedom. The Emerald Eye revives Cosmic Boy while simultaneously teleporting the Empress away. I never particularly cared for Cosmic Boy's pink and black costume he'd had up until now, and at the age of 11, I didn't object to his uniform. Forty years later, I regard it as a bit of a Spock's brain moment of an otherwise stellar series. Historically speaking, it's one of those design elements that can immediately peg a very specific era in a comic book history. Mike Grell's artwork on the backup was inked by Bill Draught, this was the first time I ever recall anyone else inking Mike's work, but it really comes as no surprise given how busy Mike was at the time. According to my research, in December 1975, Mike's work was featured in four different DC titles. A Green Lantern story in Flash number 240, a Green Arrow backup in Action Comics 457, Warlord number 2, and Superboy and the Legion number 215. He was quite the workhorse back then. The Too Old, Too New Podcast, a show dedicated to reviewing books from the bins and recent reads. 
I'm Bill. And I'm Seth. Be sure to listen to us on our Too Old, Too New comic book podcast, where we talk about two old comic books and two new comic books every episode. Comic book fans don't miss out. Too Old, Too New is available on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, and Google Play. Next up is listener feedback, when we share emails and other messages we've received since last time. We appreciate each comment. They add so much to the show. Thanks to everyone who wrote in or got in touch through social media. Episode 18 of Warlord Worlds got a great shout-out on social media from Chris Carnes of Bat Books for Beginners, who shared he was excited to hear Dr. Ange and Jeff Messer's Legion of Superheroes reviews. Ange of the Supergirl Comic Box Commentary wrote in about issue 35 of The Warlord to say, Forgot about that wacky grill inside the comic issue of Warlord. So much fun. And inspired by late night pizza. How Scrooge-esque. As Ange recalled, Scrooge saying to a ghost, Your underdone potato, a bit of bad mustard. There's more gravy than grave to you. Jamie Ray let us know how excited he was to meet Mike Grell at a recent con. He said, I watched him sketch and he told me a couple of stories. I was gushing like a school kid. Jamie shared a great photo of himself with Mike Grell. And Jamie got a beautiful sketch of the Warlord from Mike as well. It's awesome. Follow him at I am Jamie Ray to see it. Brian Hughes also enjoyed seeing Mike Grell at a recent con, and Brian was kind to take the time to mention us to Mike. And it was fun to hear that Mike gave him a big smile when Brian mentioned our names. Thanks for sharing that with us, Brian. We really appreciate how nice Mike is with all of his fans, and enjoy hearing about those experiences from other fans like Brian and Jamie. Our friend Mike Garvey of Waiting for Doom and the DC OCD podcast. Let us know this just may be the year he gets to meet Mike Grell in person as well. That's because Mike will be in Australia this spring for the Supernova Con in both Melbourne and on the Gold Coast. That's terrific. Mike's co-host Paul Hicks met Mike at a con last year, and it's great Mike will get to see him this year. Terrific. The Comic Jam shared links to a Mike Grell interview that his friends at Spoiler Country Podcast did at the San Diego Comic-Con. Great stories. It was fun to hear, and we'll post links to that in the show notes so you can check it out. Matthew at HeathHayden1982 on Twitter wrote in to say, I just finished Mike Grell's run on Green Arrow, and while I feel a sense of accomplishment, I'm sad it had to end. 80 issues and a four-issue mini, and we had no supervillains, but rather terrorists, crooked politicians, the Yakuza, scandals, bigots, and a crazy love triangle. All great. Randy Andrews of the excellent Soundtrack Alley and Gen 13 podcast shared his excitement of finding issues of John Sable and Shaman's Tears at a cool comic shop. Legend Comics and Coffee in Omaha, Nebraska. That's excellent, Randy, and it sounds just like the kind of comic shop that Clinton Robinson of Coffee and Comics blog and podcast would enjoy, too. Maybe you two will meet up there sometime. Rich Turnan dropped us a line saying, I'm a huge Mike Grell fan since Warlord came out in the 1970s. I'm such a nerd that I've modeled my own signature after his since I could sign my name. He shared a photo of his signature, and it looks great. Very stylish and great to know the inspiration. Thanks for sharing that, Rich. Martin Gray of Too Dangerous for a Girl recommended that we check out a post by Rob Steger on Captain Comics Presents the Comics Roundtable. The post is called Rob Reads the Warlord. It is always fun to see what others think of the series, and we enjoyed reading it. You'll find a link in our show notes. And Martin let us know there was a recent nod to the Warlord in the Young Monsters in Love comic. Thanks for keeping us informed, Martin. We also recommend Mike Grell fans follow Simon Barry Brisbois on Twitter. He continues to share his great series of posts focused on the Warlord comics. He shares great images from the issues as well as his thoughts on each story. 
Jared Albrook, the yard sale artist and host of Comics with Normies, let us know he just read his first issue of Warlord and loved it. He read issue number one, and it was given to him by the irredeemable shag of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. It's great when friends look out for one another. Jared is also one of the hosts of the excellent show on Her Majesty's Secret Podcast. He and his brother Jason and friends Delvin and Pat are watching and discussing all of the James Bond films. And you may just hear us making a cameo appearance on an upcoming episode or two. Next, we want to extend our thanks to everyone who supported us on social media. These are people who promoted our last episode and shared comments. If we miss a name, please let us know and we'll include it next time. And do forgive us if we mispronounce your name. If that happens, let us know and we'll be happy to correct it next time as well. The 20th Century Geek Podcast with Scott Weatherly, Alan Wright from BoldOutlaw.com, Ange of the Supergirl Comic Box Commentary Blog, Ashford of the Ride On Network featuring Feathers and Foes and Straight Out of Gallifrey, Bill Beer of the Too Old Too New Podcast, Brian Mulvey, Cash Flag, Chris Carnes and Jerry Green of Bat Books for Beginners, Chris Mounts, Chris Sheehan of the Cosmic Treadmill Podcast and the blog Chris is on Infinite Earths. Clinton Robison of the Coffee and Comics blog and podcast, The Comic Jam, Comics in the Golden Age with Mike and Chris, Creator Talks with Christopher Calloway, Derek William Crabb of the Fan Holes podcast and the History of Comics on Film, Diablo Frank of the Outlehead of Diablo Martian Manhunter blog, Diana Prince Wonder Woman, and Spinometer, Dr. G, Man of Nerdology of the Pulp to Pixel podcast network, Ed and Terry Moore of Till Productions. Grant Richter of Avatar of the Green and the Krakathoom podcast with the Long Box of Darkness. The Irredeemable Shag, a.k.a. Firestorm fan of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Jay Grounds. Jared Albrecht, the yard sale artist from Comics with Normies. Jay Jones of the Silver and Gold Podcast. Jeff Messer of Geek Brain Podcast and Blog. Joe Crawford of the Blog for the Non-Discerning Reader. John Baker, who does sci-fi TV reviews at 3 If by Space. Justice's First Dawn with Mike Peacock. Karen Williams of the Very Sweet Between the Pages blog, Laurel Phillips, a.k.a. Mountainflower, Mark Adams of Mark's Mess Podcast, Mark Sweeney from the ITG blog and podcast, Martin Gray of the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl, Michael Allen Carlisle of the blog Crap Box of Son of Cthulhu, Nicholas Prom of Comic Reflections, Pat Sampson of the Longbox Crusade, Paul Hicks of the Waiting for Doom podcast, Professor Allen of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, Randy Andrews of the Soundtrack Alley and the New Gen 13 podcast. Reggie Hancock of the Cosmic Treadmill podcast. Rolled Spine podcast. Warlock Thanos podcast. Weird Science DC with Jim, Eric, and Reggie. Wendy Freeman of the podcast Double Page Spread. And Worst Comics podcast ever with Cullen, Jerry, and John. Before we go, we want to provide our contact information. If you want to contact us directly or have something you would like to have read on the show, then please send us an email at warlordworlds at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram using the name Warlord Worlds. And you can listen to our show through iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, and all of our episodes are always available at warlordworlds.com. You can also find the show on YouTube as part of the Rad Adventures Network. That's Rad, R-A-D, which is short for Ruth and Darren. On the Rad Adventures YouTube channel, you'll find all of the episodes of all of our podcasts, including Warlord Worlds, as well as Trekker Talk about 23rd Century Bounty Hunter Mercy St. Clair by Ron Randall, and Xenozoic Xenophiles about the Cadillacs and Dinosaurs series Xenozoic Tales by Mark Schultz. 
If you like the show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Every review helps the podcast be more likely to show up in search results. And on YouTube, we hope you'll subscribe to the channel and give us some likes on the videos. Thanks for listening, and we hope you will come back next time for another new episode of Warlord Worlds. Warlord Worlds is a proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. For more information, visit comicspodcast.com. We are not affiliated with DC Comics or Mike Rail. The views expressed on the show are solely ours. Music is taken from the album Royalty-Free Instrumental Music for Movies and Websites. We make no money from this podcast and no copyright infringement is intended.